Let me be explicit. Right now, in this podcast, there's some explicit language. It's Wednesday, August 29th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. In war game news, yeah, U.S. war games are on in and around Korea again. It is a weird, weird characteristic of the age that even for a forward-thinking, mostly dovish, military-industrial-complex-type person that... Such a person would look at the return of war games near Korea and say, well, thank God. But after President Trump canceled the last war games on a whim, Secretary of Defense Mattis now says the new ones. No, Secretary of Defense Mattis say, yeah, that won't be happening again. Uh, We have no plans at this time to suspend any more exercises. In case you were wondering if he, like me, was maybe talking about going easy on the kettlebells and the preacher curls. No, unlike me, he now means that, well, the sun's out. Therefore, the guns are out. Uh, We suspended several exercises at the direction of the president. Uh, The good faith effort was made. Uh, We have had, we have done no planning uh, for suspending others. Obviously, we know what exercises are out there. So we could do that if directed to. The joint drills with the South Koreans. Yeah, it's sort of like when you go to the airport and they say, oh, just go through the metal detector is down. You're like, all right, no metal detector. Wait a minute, no metal detector. You know, we kind of do need to detect the metal, you know, just to be safe. War games aren't the sole provenance of the United States, though. No, Russia is conducting them. Maybe we'll be helped by the Chinese this time in Vostok 18. They are said to be the biggest Russian war games since 1981. Because, you know, a military policy cannot be conducted by fancy bearers alone. Sure, the occasional poisoning of a British citizen is great for national pride and all, but what are you gonna what are you gonna parade a vial of nerve agent through Red Square? We need tanks and planes, and Vostok 2018 will deliver six thousand tanks, armored personnel carriers, and armored infantry vehicles scheduled to be part of these maneuvers and all of Russian's airborne units and two of its naval fleets across Siberia and the Russian Far East. This is building on the Russian military maneuvers of last year called Zapad 2017. Now, Zapad wasn't really as big, but it, it really did freak out some NATO countries because what Russia did last year was they invented a bunch of fictional countries. They were called Vaishnaraya, Lubinaya, and Vesbarsiria. And those countries looked a lot like Poland, Estonia, and Latvia. I mean, Vesbaraya on a map is exactly where Lithuania and Latvia are. And actors playing Vaishnarians took great offense at ubiquitous Vaishnarian jokes. They took pains to point out that it really does only take one Vaishnarian to screw in a light bulb, no matter what truly tasteless misinformation campaigns would have you believe. So here's hoping that Vostok 2018 will be more like Zapod 2017 and less like Woodstock 1999, though an insane clown posse will be involved in each. On the show today, I spiel about the type of Trump news, news though it may be, that's best to ignore. But first, the hokum, hooey, and applesauce that has characterized much of America from the jump. Kevin Young is here to talk about bunk. In a democracy, in fact, 
the oldest continuously functioning constitutional democracy. You would think the ability to tell a truth from a lie would be important, essential. Maybe you'd even think we're getting better at it. Well, we're not. Although if I told you we were, maybe I'd be able to convince you. It's something about human nature and I think something about America itself. And Kevin Young agrees with me. He is the author of Bunk, The Rise of Hoaxes, Humbug, Plagiarists, Phonies, Post Facts, and Fake News. Hello, Kevin. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. There are a lot of names for Bunk. I like the one that you chose for the title and not the subtitle is Bunk because it's very American and very political. Yeah, I mean, it, it starts in 1820 as a political thing, which is to say it comes from the Missouri Compromise when a senator or a representative, I should say, said from the congressional floor that he wanted to give a speech even though the question had been called. And they said, well, you don't need to. And he said, well, I have to give a speech to Buncombe. Uh, and he meant Buncombe County, his home county, which is Ash- where Asheville, North Carolina is. But um, he quickly that became Buncombe, B-U-N-K-U-M, and then just simply Bunk. And so it was tied up in this issue even then of slavery and race and also politics and, and kind of sh- showing off just to speak for speech's sake. The major theme of the book is how tied up with uh, race and America the idea of Bunk is. But if there is one insight again and again and again about the nature of Bunk, the through line, it's this. The hoaxers are really telling us something that we want to know. That's it. That's the basic premise of it. Well, I, I think, you know, I started the book thinking about why do we deceive each other? And then I, by the end, I really started being coming interested in why we believe. You know, why do we fall for this? And oftentimes uh, it's because it speaks to these deep divisions that are already there and the hoaxer steps into them. And it's a way of sort of not just manipulating truth but seeming to be true because it tells a story we want to kind of believe about each other. And sometimes, and I think especially now, it's the worst possible story. It's it's what I call worser. You know, everything's worser. Not only is the hoax, there are many more of them, but they're also stories of horror and fear. Yeah. Well, to skip ahead to the present, because that's where people's uh, minds will go. That's why the book, which was what, like half a decade or more in the writing, uh, took on this urgency. The last phrase in the subtitle is fake news. You could argue there's the Flynn effect, which literally shows our IQ is getting higher, that we are getting smarter, that we have more tools, that we should be more sophisticated. I guess another side to that or the other side of the coin is as human cognition gets better, so do the tools to fool human cognition. But is that really the calculation or is it more less to do with the intellect and more to do with uh, motivations? You're not going to make me say IQ tests or hoaxes, are you? You can. Because, <laughs> you know, I, I think that measuring intelligence starts to go down a really dangerous road. And in fact, one of the things that I came to realize is how tied not just the hoaxes to race, uh, they both kind of grew up in their modern sense uh, at the same time. I and mean, people have been lying forever, but the term hoax comes about in the middle of the 18th century, right when our modern sense of race as people being tied to their skin color and skin color being tied to place and then pretty rapidly sort of the hierarchies around that appear. And it's not a coincidence. And I think in 1835, for instance, where the book starts with P.T. Barnum and uh, a various array of hoaxes 
Poe, uh, the moon hoax. They're also when blackface is invented. You know, it's also the same time as the penny press, which comes to bring all this news to the masses, but at the same time is filled with hoaxes. And I liken it very much to the internet and our internet yes. age and what what it sort of parallels. The worry I have is that after tracing the hoax, and I started to see that the hoax was getting worse now. Now, I, I think there are cycles of this. And yeah. so that's my hope is that, you know, this is a temporary cycle rather than a permanent one. But I do think that we're in the danger more than ever of a kind of half hoax world. It's hard to really shake that because then you're not surprised when there's a level of deceit that's unparalleled. Right. And the idea that everything is kind of fake, reality show viewers, and I know you like reality shows. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't everyone? Right. We all have, we all have our own uh, poisons. But reality show viewers, they're somehow both believing it while maintaining this sheen of, yes, we know it's manipulated. I, I also think fans of professional wrestling now are like that. They know it's not real. Maybe they think some other rube out there thinks it's real, but they think it's realer than it really is. <laughs> Yeah, it's a fascinating thing. I mean, I think that very much is about human character. And I would argue about American character, um, that we love that kind of show. And I think that in Barnum's day, um, reality shows are a really good analogy for how audiences experienced, uh, you know, the Fiji mermaid um, or these figures that were supposed to be often this exotic other that you're supposed to witness. Um, or even George Washington's maid, yeah, which I could have her. been a real person, but she's she a real wasn't. person, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, and they said she was George Washington's nurse maid. Her name was Joyce Heth, um, which would have made her 161, which Barnum trumpeted over and over again. And that kind of wish, you almost understand it. You know, from a distance, we can understand why you would want to, you know, be in the presence of someone who was in the presence of the father of the nation. It was a young nation at that time. And I think that that idea of past greatness and being connected to it still uh, holds sway. You mean making America great again, let's say? <laughs> um, well, by the way, Barnum ran for governor of Connecticut, right? Yeah, he ran. Do you know what kind of politician it would have been? Would he have been a let's throw truth out the door politician? <laughs> no. I mean, uh, we... I hesitate to speculate, but, I, you know, he was a complicated guy. You know, he uh, was anti-slavery in some of his positions, but we think that he, for instance, bought Joyce Heth. Um, you know, there's, it's a complicated situation, and, you know, I hesitate to uh, speculate on Barnum's political life. But yeah. I, I think it's interesting that that's where he headed. What were we as the hoaxed or the American society at the time who believed in the moon hoax and tell us about that newspaper hoax? What was it that we were getting out of it? If the premise is the hoax, the hoaxed party always wants to have some belief confirmed. What well, were we confirming? I mean, you know, I think over and over again, especially in the 19th century, it's a question of wonder often, yes. you know, and, and Barnum is providing access to wonders, uh, plural. And, you know, that's a powerful pull. You know, we want to believe in the miraculous in some way. And I think Barnum is trying to capture our imaginations when we see these people or, or constructions. But so many of them are dependent on race. And so many of them are dependent on these level of hierarchies. And I think that the moon hoax... So this was what year? It was 1835. 1835. New York, 1835. New York uh, Sun? Uh, yes, the New York yeah, Sun. Yeah. Um, Sean's on all. <laughs> a gentleman by the name of Locke wrote these... Uh, 
we now know, wrote these missives from a person, Herschel, who's a real astronomer, looking uh, from the Cape of Good Hope and seeing the moon. And then every day he'd roll out a little bit more. It's like, oh, I see a little bit of glimmer. And then the next day it's like, oh, it's a you know man bat uh, or it's a biped beaver. And he's, you start to read them and you see it's a brilliant hoax in its uh, – sort of seemingly scientificness, but also in its ability to kind of hierarchize for us and map uh, in a fantastical way the stuff that's on Earth onto the moon. It's really an Earth hoax, if you will. And um, it was really believed by many, but also argued over in the papers. It caused the penny papers to jump in circulation. Everyone wanted to see the next installment. Uh, It's you know, a kind of bachelor for <laughs> its day in the sense that it's trying to play with some of these same things. And I think people experienced it in all the ways you might. You know, it wasn't entirely believed. And I think sometimes we think, oh, I would have never fell for that then. And then we fall for the next hoax in our time. Was there a perniciousness to it other than, you know, truth is truth is better than fiction, especially when it's packaged as such? Well, I think the interesting thing is I think it was about race in some way, displacing race and slavery, for instance, and the arguments over slavery that were going on in the time and in these papers as well, um, to the moon. Um, And so it was both an escape and also a kind of refraction of that. So I wouldn't say it's pernicious, though, because one of my arguments is that back then, the hoax was a bit more honorific. You know, um, Joyce Heff was supposed to honor our nation. The moon hoax is sort of honoring wonder and discovery. Um, And now it would be, you know, as War in the World, someone said, one of the writers of War of the Worlds and Orson Welles, the radio show that caused this huge panic, he was like, no one would have believed it if it had been aliens were coming to give us hugs, you know. (laughs) One of its beliefs is that it was horrific, is that these, you know, people being annihilated and people grabbed their guns and ran out, you know, in many cases into the street or on their farm or, you know, they were really ready for battle. And some of that was playing on World War II, but some of that I think is the switch in the hoax that has gotten us, you know, uh, Pizzagate or any other gate that comes along. Do we get better at it? Give me uh, an optimistic uh, assessment of what happens to the idea of the hoax, given what we know about human nature. Do our immune systems get more robust? I mean, I I like to think so. I mean, I think that one of the things is knowing how they come about and and seeing their pattern and almost, you know, it – it's a different kind of reverse engineering. If a story is almost too good to be true, maybe we need to start thinking about mm-hmm. it. If it hits us exactly like, oh, of course, um, we might have to step back a little bit. It's very hard right now because I think people are more divided than ever and they're getting information in as many divided places as they might ever have. But once you start reading about, say, the penny press, you know, and thinking about the ways those papers were battling it out or the era of yellow journalism – 1890s, you know, you start to see that there are times when we're in those kind of divided moments. Do they last beyond that? I'm not sure. I think that there is a way that you can start to say, you know what, let's try to not just kumbaya come together, but let's think about sources and where we get our information and let's hold whoever, you know, we think we need to, to a higher truth and think about that a lot. Bunk, The Rise of Hoaxes, Humbug, Plagiarists, Phonies, Post-Facts, and Fake News by Kevin Young. Kevin, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me.
And now the spiel. A constant tension in the Trump era is what? What part of his tweets, his ideas, his asides, his spasms, what to report and what to ignore? And by ignore, I do think they should be noted. I'm glad to have an article in the paper of record of every presidential utterance that is stupid and actionable, just so we know about them, just so that we can remember them, just so that one day we could say, do you believe this guy? But how big a deal to make of them? Over the last two days, the two biggest Trump stories that we covered in the media were stories that I feel should have been downplayed. One was how the White House was treating the death of John McCain. The answer, quite pettily. Proof, not issuing a full statement, the presence of a large image of President Trump and that John McCain in the Instagram version of condolence that the White House issued, and the fact that the White House flag was at full staff much of the day. How small can the president be? Quite small. How thin is his skin? Extremely thin. How much more evidence of his poor character do we need? Not much more. Why does the president make this about him? I will tell you. It's because we, in the media, make it about him. And then yesterday, he tweeted some... What is the technical phrase about his critique of Google? Ah, yes. He tweeted some dumbass shit that got covered as the top story in today's Wall Street Journal. The president does not know how a computer works, even less than he knows how a dog works, that they're always begging for jobs, or how a marriage works, or how an endorsement speech works, or how the presidency works. He reportedly calls his iPad the flat one like he calls Eric the dim one. His thoughts on Google would be of note if he were a normal president, but if he were a normal president, he wouldn't be complaining about Google's search engine. And do we really think that this is a specific threat that will ever achieve fruition? Do we really think that his thoughts, his angry thoughts one day will ever lead to a crackdown on Google? This kerfuffle between the most incompetent, unresourceful, unimaginative, antiquated individual in public life versus the cutting-edge, hyper-efficient, staggeringly innovative corporation known as Google or Alphabet. Donald Trump does not understand Google's algorithm, which means he can't define algorithm. He does not know what algorithm means. I am sure of it. If you asked him what's an algorithm... I bet you within 15 seconds, he'd be talking about bringing new smelters online and how windmills kill a lot of birds. You can blow up the windmills, you know, the windmills. Boom, boom, boom. Bing, that's the end of that windmill. If the birds don't kill it first. Guys, Google safe. Don't worry, Google safe. I've said, and will say again, what we need to focus on is Trump's mucus. Wait. How can you tell which part is mucus? No, no, no. It's an acronym. Mucus. Mentally unfit, cruel, unethical, and stupid. That's the stuff. Those are all the habits of Trump that could result in decrees or policies that will harm us. And those are the flaws of Trump to watch out for. There are elements of stupidity in his Google lash out, which I'm sure they'll debut to rival the meetup. And there is some cruelty at play in his reluctance to treat Senator McCain's life and legacy with respect. But those are like sub-vices. 
the pettiness, the lack of decorum, the vulgarism. They're dispiriting, but they're not the threat to democracy. They're not going to give rise to policies that will be our undoing like the mucus policies will be. During the same time that Trump drew heat on the flag, he proudly announced a trade deal with Mexico that actually was significant. It was significant for being worse for most Americans than the deal it replaced. That deserved more coverage. Also, his administration resumed war games and has stepped back from diplomatic negotiation with North Korea. That bears scrutiny. Making a big show of, quote-unquote, solving the nuclear issue in North Korea turns out not to have matched reality. Of course it doesn't. And there is, of course, no chance that Trump will ever acknowledge or learn from it. Also, over the past couple days, while this other stuff was getting a lot of attention, there were documents that were released that showed that Trump stopped construction of a needed FBI building because it would mess with the revenue of Trump hotels. That is the stupid stuff. That is the unethical stuff. That is the mentally unfit stuff we need to worry about. And it's better to focus on than a flag. And luckily, if you need to read up on it because the media didn't cover it enough, it can all be Googled. And I would say there is no chance of that changing anytime soon. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader and Pierre Bienname produce the gist. They're always on the lookout for malarkey. They've got their malarkey antenna up, but they're not sifting out the rare but needed Western Sumatran strain of fooey that we so desperately crave. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, abhors poppycock, but loves the song stylings of Robin Thicke and Robbie Williams, known as Cocky Pop. The gist. Funny joke. An old woman in Vaishnaraya is visited by her son. Mama, mama, did you hear? We've been invaded. We've been fully taken over by Lubinaya. Thank God, says the woman. Thank God? How could you say thank God? Lubinaya is our enemy. I know, I know, son, she says, but I just couldn't take these cold Vaishnarayan winters. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>